This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The School of Night. Whiskey War. Writing Transitions. And Houston's Illuminati Hotel Room. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clattering of dice and the clashing of foils and perhaps a glimpse into a dark obsidian mirror tell us that we have entered a particularly Elizabethan segment of the Gaming Hut, and this segment springs from some observations made at the Pelgrane Summit in December, when we realized that we were not doing enough to talk about the topics in Ken Writes About Stuff, or KWAS, as it is sometimes acronymized, and uh, since uh, focusing more on this will spare me coming up with a Gaming Hut topic once a month that seems inefficient to me. So, Ken, why don't we start off by reminding people uh, what Ken writes about stuff is and how their lives are impoverished if they're not uh, currently uh, subscribed to it. Well, um, uh, I would say perhaps merely gray and unfulfilled as opposed to impoverished. That seems a little harsh. But Ken writes about stuff is a monthly PDF that I produce uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11 pages, and it adds something to your ongoing game, usually your ongoing gumshoe game, because it is, after all, Pelgrane that are publishing it, and they are the the good people. 
but uh, every now and again, it's something that you can perhaps pop out and use in any kind of game, like the uh, treatment of Lilith, for example, or the various hideous creatures of the Cthulhu mythos that I examine about every other month. And sometimes it's a uh, rules examination for gumshoe, such as the mind control rules that I did, or the um, uh, martial arts rules, and sometimes it's a specific look at a specific magic system. I did a two-volume series on Voodoo, for example, and sometimes it's a mini-campaign frame, uh, Moondust Men, in which you play 1970s UFO crash site investigators, and the titular School of Night, in which you play members of the possibly non-existent, but certainly evocative, uh, Elizabethan society of poets, spies, and scientists, and magicians, uh, that circled around Sir Walter Raleigh in the 1590s or thereabouts. Uh, we'll get to that anon, but uh, first of all, from your description, I would say impoverished is not too strong a word, but how is this available? This is available as a subscription that you buy uh, once a year at a bargain price, or also each installment is available separately? Yes. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, you can subscribe to it for about two-thirds off the cover, or you can buy individual KWAS singles, uh, either from the Pelgrain stand or from E23, or from One Bookshelf, or DriveThru, your uh, your source for many of your online role-playing game purchases. And so uh, you can you can pick them up ad hoc to add individual spice to your campaign, or you can just subscribe to the whole thing and read me uh, every month uh, dumping some wisdom into your ears like Hamlet's Poison. And by Pelgrane Stand, you, of course, mean the Pelgrane Press store at Pelgrane Press. Dot com. That is precisely what I mean. A virtual stand, as it were. As it were. In which uh, Ken and Robin and Cat are not charmingly standing there waiting to hand you your merchandise, but nonetheless... But on the other hand, you can shop there in your underpants, which you can't exactly. do at Gen so. uh, Which we discourage at a, we a non-virtual we stand. We really do. So, uh, The School of Night uh, seems like a particular bargoon because it is described as a campaign frame, but I would describe it even as a gumshoe minigame because you've got lots of mechanics in there and... This is something that uh, were demand to warrant it, that you could certainly flesh out into a full core book. But if uh, players or, and GMs are willing to do just a spot of research and extrapolation, that in it of itself could be a long uh, gumshoe series. And that includes certain uh, mechanical additions. Uh, so you've listed the gumshoe uh, abilities that translate into... Uh, School of Night abilities. So you've got uh, one called Faction, for example, an interpersonal ability. How does that work? Uh, faction is the equivalent of network in Knights Black Agents, except that your factotum's pools refresh because the School of Night is not set in the ablative world of, of European super spies. It's set in the less ablative world of Elizabethan super spies. But your faction are your retinue, your friends, your servants, your relatives, your ship crew, whoever you can make go do things for you, that's your faction. And so you have a little faction pool, and you put it, uh, points into an individual member of your faction and send them off to do their do your bidding. And if it comes down to a contest, they have to roll and spend points from their, from their existence pool, basically. Um, you can pick up core clues with factions for free, with faction for free, obviously. If your servant is in a position to overhear, you know, a, a dark secret, then he comes scuttling back to you and tells you about it. And you tap your faction for specific knowledge. That's just the same as getting any other kind of investigative spend. But what it gives you is that sense of being in a web of Elizabethan society, which is so important to a game that's set, especially in the pre-modern or early modern era, when, you know, your family relations and who you know 
is even more utterly critical to survival than it is now in our modernist, uh, atomized age. So if I'm playing Sir Walter Raleigh, mm-hmm. and, uh, or Raleigh as is more often pronounced. Or Raleigh. Raleigh. And, uh, I've just discovered that there is an assassin on my trail, but I don't know who it is. How do I use my faction ability to either get close to figuring out who the assassin is or find a place to hide out until the coast is clear? Well, you have, uh, you have buried the lead a little bit because you are indeed uh, potentially playing actual members of the School of Night, the historical figures that may or may not have been associated with it. Uh, you, what you do is, if you have unspent faction points, what you do is you say, all right, Ken, or GM, whoever the uh, GM happens to be, I'm going to take... Because you do not necessarily come with the PDF. No, I do not actually come with... And you can call them Ken or uh, Bill if you want, whatever you want to call them. Um, but the uh, you tell the GM, I want to take four of my faction points or five of my faction points and have an intelligencer who works for me or a persivant, you know, a, a private detective or a, a private spy in Elizabethan terms. And I'm going to send him out to find out who has uh, put their bravos to following me. And so your persivant would roll, you know, as a test and the GM would decide whether or not that's a difficulty four, difficulty six, difficulty eight, just like in a normal uh, gumshoe game. And they would roll and spend from their faction existence. And that, a degree of uh, success would tell you how much information you get. If they fail, then your participant comes back and says, I wasn't able to find out anything, Sir Walter. I feel terrible about that. And if they, uh, you know, manage to burn out all of their spends, then maybe you find their broken, beaten up body in the street somewhere, but they've got, they've, they're clutching uh, the, 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 the coat of arms or the livery of one of the thugs that's set upon them, and that gives you the clue anyway, even though you've sadly spent your four-faction guy. But like I say, in School of Night, the default is that then those five points would come back when you needed to hire another uh, go-between or cutout. And even if you're not interested in playing an Elizabethan game, another great thing about this uh, value-packed PDF is it has a whole new magic system, and it's based on an Elizabethan aesthetic, but it's something you could certainly envision uh, using in uh, a modern-day horror game, not particularly as a terrorist, because magic works differently mm-hmm. in that universe, but in a Fear Itself game or in a sort of a kit-bashed game in any later era where people are drawing on ancient magics. And so what is the basic idea behind this new magic system? In order to get a proper Elizabethan magic system, you have to go back to John Dee. And John Dee worked on his own magic system for probably 10 or 15 years. And at one point, he thought he was done enough, and he wrote down a book, which is not very long, called Heptarchia Mystica, in which he explains the angels that govern the various elements, the spheres of the world, fundamentally. And so, uh, by calling on those angels, you can turn their attention and use their uh, goodwill to accomplish ends in the world. And so, I went to the Heptarchia Mystica, and I dug out uh, the sort of domains of those angels. And so, you basically, you buy your angel as a given uh, magical ability, so... Uh, or your um, your planet, rather, because the angels govern the planets, and it's planets that do the magic for you. So you buy a skill in Mercury if you want to uh, understand the depths and secrets of the Earth, caverns or the past, judgment, hell, the gates of death, fire, languages, or magic. And that's what Mercury has sort of power over. And these come right out of John Dee's book. They're not, you know, the standard sort of versions that you might think of, because they are specifically to what Dee found out when he was gazing into his creepy magic mirror, or rather when he was having a convicted forger gaze into his creepy magic mirror. Although I think this predates 
Kelly coming on, on board, so it might have been a, a young boy from the village that was doing the gazing. So if you are playing John D and you uh, run into, uh, you're on a blasted moor, and you see some ghouls scuttling toward you, what is uh, one of the magical effects you could uh, work to uh, help yourself out of that situation? Well, the trouble with um, uh, proper magic, with proper Enochian magic, is it takes a long time. If the ghouls are coming towards you right now, and you're John D., you'd better um, be using uh, either a pre-existing enchanted item that you've made to summon some help, or possibly to make yourself invisible to the ghouls and hope that they don't see you. But the minimum time spent on a uh, on on a on a magical uh, working in the Heptarchia Mystica system is three hours. So unless those ghouls are very slow or you're very well hidden, you're not going to be able to um, uh, do anything magically against them. You have to work your magic sort of over uh, uh, either subtly or over a long period of time and. Uh, build an effect uh, with with lots and lots of of studying and scrying. It's not a it's not a fireballs and and uh, and magic missiles type magic. For that you have you know pistols. Do you have a provision to allow for sort of a magical equivalent preparedness though, where you can say, well, I just happened to have done a working that took me three hours, but that happened off stage, and now I'm going to use it against the ghouls. That would be the kind of thing that might go into the expanded version of this if it becomes a core book. Um, I think that doing something like that would tend to over-egg the magical pudding, although I can think that there's a couple of ways that you might be able to balance it mechanically. I mean, the goal is to not make magicians take over so that there's plenty of things for guys with uh, you know cutlasses to do as well in the setting, such as fight ghouls. Right, but you can confine things to subtle effects, right? Right, yeah. It might be yeah. that they... The magician is buffing one of the guys with the sword mm -hmm. so that it's not, you know, there's no CGI effects going on, but the uh, magician still feels he's got something magic-y to do in the fight rather than, right. you know, just fire away with his pistols. Yeah. That's, so I mentioned ghouls. Uh, that implies that uh, you're fighting monsters in this, which I gather is, is that the primary core activity of a School of Night campaign or, or one of several things you do? It's one of several things that you do. As In the School of Night, you might be investigating, you know, the, the hated Spanish or the Jesuits as they plot against the queen. You might be plotting against the queen. Uh, you're finding out more about magic in the sort of bookhounds, pure academic sort of sense. Uh, you're fighting monsters because monsters are bad news. Uh, it, so it's, it, it can be any sort of, um, uh, you know, weirdness and, uh, monster hunt, demonic activity type game. It can sort of float towards supernatural or over towards fringe, depending on how you want to play it. And, uh, foes include, uh, foes even given in the book include, uh, a necroma necromancers, werewolves, uh, in the proper Elizabethan sense of people with a grossly over, uh, charged melancholic humor. Uh, I've got a manticore in there, because I love manticores. The Raw Head, which is a genuine Elizabethan uh, monster and boogeyman. And, uh, you know, Mephistopheles, because he might show up and mess with you. Plus fairies and hellhounds. So we mentioned uh, Raleigh and D. Who else might you play as player characters? Uh, there is no write-up for D, because D is about 62 when the game begins, and he might be a little old to go uh, stumbling through London sewers after um, uh, snake people. But uh, Thomas Harriet who is uh, Raleigh's uh, math sort of pet mathematician, uh, very much a sort of Lex Luthor of the Elizabethan world. He um, His mathematics anticipated Descartes. He practically got to calculus along with, as did Dee. Um, 
His, he wrote to Kepler, giving him tips on astronomy. He built a telescope before Galileo did, but he never published any of it. So he's sort of sitting there like Reed Richards or like um, uh, Lex Luthor with this sort of body of mysterious scientific knowledge that only he has. Uh, so he's a player character. Christopher Marlowe, of course, is a player character. Uh, spy, playwright, possible magician, um, uh, man about town. And Sir Walter Raleigh, as you mentioned. Uh, Lady Elizabeth Carey who was the muse of uh, Edmund Spencer, among other people, uh, and was also terrifyingly socially connected. Her, her husband was the Lord Chamberlain. His father was Lord Chamberlain before that. Uh, your, her sister was married to uh, the Earl of Derby, Baron Strange. So she's very, very sort of tied in to, the, um, uh, to Elizabethan court. Her faction is a very, very big number. Uh, so she can do all kinds of things uh, socially. And then she's also got a, a remarkable amount of, you know, sort of intellectual heft. She translated Petrarch in her own right, so she was a, a very intelligent uh, woman, and uh, one imagines if there was a school of night, she was the reason that it stayed unprosecuted by the town watch or the, the intelligencers who didn't want there to be sorcery being worked. So she's sort of doing the veil out at the end. Right, exactly. She's very much veil out, and it wouldn't be good for your nutmeg flood of questions, uh, your lordship, but perhaps you'd like to be over here and introduced to a royal duke instead. Well, I am concerned for my nutmeg future. As you should be. They are um, uh, they're, they're the only thing that's going to keep you out of penury, I believe. Well, in a hypothetical expanded full version of this, I would certainly argue for uh, D being a possible player character since... Uh, you know, if you did a TV, this is a TV show, mm-hmm. uh, you would certainly have a sprightly uh, D uh, running around. And, you know, who knows? He could be popping a few uh, longevity or strength elixirs to let him keep up with the young whippersnappers. Yes, I do. Um, uh, I do have a, a, a game mechanic for adapting the Viroware from uh, Ashen Stars as alchemical elixirs in this game, if that's what you want to play. Ooh, cool. Now, obviously, you're restricted by space because these things are short. Are there other uh, characters from history that you would give uh, more expanded uh, treatment to in a universe where you were not limited by word count? There's a sidebar in the book that has about maybe a dozen or 15 other figures that are attached to the School of Night. Um, There are uh, magicians like Thomas Allen. There's the Wizard Earl of Northumberland himself. Uh, There's Baron Strange, who was Shakespeare's patron. Uh, early on, uh, there are various spies like uh, Matthew Royden and uh, Thomas Walsingham. Uh, there's all manner of, uh, of poets and folks. Uh, George Chapman, uh, uh, who you may know from on looking into Chapman's Homer. That would be his Homer. Um, and then a guy who was born without a left hand and yet became an alchemist and anatomist. And so obviously he's got something going on. He's If you did this as a drama system game, he's definitely one of those weird... Uh, GMCs that sort of shows up and messes with you, Walter Warner. So is there one of those that would be a particular favorite of yours that you were sad not to flesh out more? I was sad not to get to flesh out uh, George Chapman because I like uh, the notion of poetry and mask making as as a magical system. Again, if I did flesh this out, there'd be like a dramaturgical magic uh, possibility so that by writing or performing a play, you can alter uh, the existence of of reality. And then I just think that... um, uh, Anyone named Ferdinando Stanley Baron Strange deserves to get statted out just because you're named Baron Strange right there. You have to be a player <laughs> character. It's just too obvious. Now, in the TV series version of this, uh, Shakespeare would obviously be one of the 
members of the ensemble. Is there a reason why you haven't put him on the list? I didn't put him on the list because there is no historical evidence, even to the degree that there's historical evidence for any of these people, uh, that he was in the School of Night. And to the extent we know what he might have thought, he might have been uh, averse to it because the allusion from which its name comes is an allusion in Love's Labor's Lost where he says, Black is the badge of hell, the hue of dungeons, and the school of night. And so he is either making fun of the school of night in Love's Labor's Lost as the bunch of uh, uh, scientists who gather off and don't accomplish anything until women show up and help them, or he is making fun of them and also underlining that they are bad news with a lot of uh, codes and probably uh, in-jokes that we don't get now because it's 300 years later and we don't know what refers to George Chapman or uh, Lord Strange. On the other hand, if his boss is in it, then Shakespeare is probably at least not able to blow the gaff on the School of Night. I, I think that it would be fun to have Shakespeare as a NPC uh, who shows up and sort of may or may not be on your side, and you don't know because it's sort of weird and enigmatic, and maybe he's done his own deal with the King of the Fairies or something, and uh, and, and that. Although, you know, Shakespeare and Marlowe uh, buddy cop comedy would also be pretty good. Well, and I guess that would be the main reason against having Shakespeare in it, which is that uh, you've already got two playwrights if you've got Marlowe in there. Mm -hmm. So I think that pretty much covers the awesomeness that is School of Night. So, listeners, you are not already subscribed to Ken Writes About Stuff. That is the sort of stuff that Ken is writing about and that you are missing out on. The smell of molasses, the rattle of glass... And the sight of blue-coated infantrymen wielding axes tell us that we've entered a particularly dramatic uh, installment of the Food Hut. And here in the Food Hut, uh, we are dealing with the first great bureau, uh, uh, untouchable, smashing barrel, uh, the man stopping you from making alcohol time in America, the Whiskey Wars of the 1860s and 70s. Robin, uh, the Whiskey Wars, do you want to give us a 411 on them, or do you want to just uh, run right into what we can do? Um, so basically this is, uh, and you can correct me if I'm getting the, the details wrong, but this is what happens when uh, America decides to have an internal revenue service for the first time, and it's uh, far before uh, anybody thinks of income tax, mm -hmm. but uh, even in the 19th century, it, it was easy for governments to think of alcohol as a popular, frequently sold item that could be easily taxed. However, uh, easily in this sentence turns out to uh, perhaps not apply because this is right after the Civil War. Uh, there are all sorts of people who are used to having to uh, fight for the things they believe in and the things they believe in if they are distillers or consumers of whiskey is the right to uh, drink uh, whiskey at uh, whatever God-given market price exists without the government uh, slapping an excise on it. And uh, since the confluence of the government needing money because of the war and people being ready to take up arms, because that's what they'd already done, come together, you get... Uh, actually, the scale of this kind of dwarfs uh, prohibition, right? You've got cases like a, a particular raid uh, in Brooklyn where there were a couple of army battalions uh, going in to fight uh, the distillers and their uh, supporters. 
Uh, is there any other sort of basic background that you think people uh, need on this? You've limbed uh, the background pretty well, certainly the philosophical background of how the government shouldn't be taxing our, our whiskey. Uh, they stopped taxing whiskey in 1817, uh, which is part of why James Monroe's administration was the era of good feelings. And uh, they only began it again in 1862. And by the post-war era, when they were paying off the debt, they taxed it at basically more money than the whiskey cost. The, it became a, uh, a punitive tariff. And it hit that point like cigarette taxes have in New York. Where uh, today, where nobody believes that they're legitimate taxes, and everyone colludes to evade them, and that's what mean what drives the fact that you have to start sending in the army to smash stuff. But of course, you've also got the situation, just like you did in uh, the later Prohibition, and probably now in New York, is that people bribe the cops, and so the cops are you know tipping them off. So whenever the army comes through to chop things up with an axe, the owner of the factory is never there, the owner of the distillery is never there, and somehow. Nobody ever gets put on trial, despite wandering around with uh, enormous diamond studs in their hats, which is what uh, contemporary historians describe the distiller kings as doing. <laughs> and, you know, everything is better in the Grant administration, pretty much. Uh, you've got uh, the army hunting down the Ku Klux Klan, and you've got the army breaking the distilleries in Brooklyn. So it's a it's a pretty happening time uh, for any sort of of gaming and and probably for any sort of illegal <laughs> profiteering as well. So the first gaming application of this that comes to mind is a drama system series where you play the members of a distilling clan uh, and uh, the backdrop of this uh, sort of war against uh, the government is the thing that drives up the stakes and tightens the screws uh, as it were. Uh, and is there another thing that you would set specifically in this period, or a twist that you would want to make sure we're in a drama system version of it? I think in a drama system version, the thing that you want to make sure is that you... I, I think the main thing you want to do is make sure that you emphasize, to a degree, the social strains that are happening as the temperance movement, as the growing sort of 19th century Victorian respectability begins to wash over America's shores at long last, and uh, the, the the distillers were Irish and Germans and Norwegians. They were not white in that era. They were you know, creepy ethnic weirdos. And you want to make sure that you get that that feel of it. It, it. it needs to feel like these guys are outsiders, not insiders. That they so are. you could have sort of two families, uh, and you know, use the age old device of maybe there's going to be a, an intermarriage between them, or there's a you know there's a couple from each from one of the families, and one of the families is the establishment uh, wasp. Uh, temperance family, and the other is the uh, up-and-coming, hard-knuckled, uh, hard-muscled uh, Irish distiller family, and all of it. And then that would give you that sort of sense of uh, broader uh, ethnic and cultural conflict, as right. well yeah. as the drama within the family. And then the and you know and the thing about drama system is you want to make sure that there's those social pressures on you, as opposed to just. I want to beat that other rival to the, you know, whiskey rights to Vinegar Hill or something. And so I, I think that you, yeah, you're right, that that social uh, component needs to go into it. So what can we do then to take the whole idea of, uh, the idea of, you know, a breakdown in civil society to the extent in which there are like battalions entering an urban neighborhood in order to crack down on tax infractions uh, is something that makes, you know, the current tattered 
social fabric of, of America look kind of quaint by comparison. And the idea, I think, that uh, gives it a little bit of a fun charge is that it's there's kind of a humorous aspect to it because it's a war over alcohol or over something that you drink right. over it. And that's why it's in the food hut, right? It's a, a war over uh, a, a drink product that we think is fairly a innocuous. Yes. Um, yeah, and so therefore... Uh, it'd be kind of hard to imagine a scenario in which the players are going to want to play the tax authorities. One certainly hopes not. That's uh, <laughs> kind of unsympathetic. Uh, you could make it, uh, you know, if you showed them that this thing that's being taxed is actually a social evil and that that's bringing about a, a social good, you could maybe talk them into it. But I think probably not because the players really love, uh, in general, being on the irresponsible uh, rebellious side of any conflict rather than on the authoritarian uh, good-for-you side of any conflict. Uh, how would you translate this, say, into a, a science fiction uh, scenario? Would you just uh, uh, shave off the uh, serial numbers and give uh, uh, put laser pistols in people's hands, or is there uh, something else that tells us about today through the lens of the future if we take the idea of a war over control of the sale of a, a food or drink product into a, a future tense. If I'm going to move it into the future, into science fiction, it's not going to be about whiskey anymore. It's going to be about um, uh, illegal uh, you know, VR environments or something like that, right? That it's going to be something that, you know, maybe there's just like the they hacked into all those Hollywood uh, people's phones and they got all the naked pictures that you're not supposed to see because uh, you're not supposed to see people's naked pictures if they don't want you to, for gosh sakes. But obviously, once you have the VR, there's going to be illicit, you know, trade in that as well. And that's going to blow up and become a huge uh, deal. And while you might not necessarily want to be playing the pornographers, you're also not necessarily going to be wanting to play the you know, the, the you know, the uh, United States hyper-militarized uh, intellectual property guys. Intellectual property is under the Department of Homeland Security right now. Um, so the DHS guys who, who who come diving in and try and find out if you've got, you know, an illicit, um, uh, you know, not, not just illicit Jessica Alba, you know, um, uh, uh, VR hookups, but like downloaded copies of, you know, a, a, you know, show you don't have music rights to or something. And it can yes. turn into this whole uh, question, not just of um, illicit entertainment, but of what's on your computer and what is the government allowed to know is on your computer. They're like, no, we're just collecting the taxes on it. That's all it is. We're not against you having all this, you know, this stuff. It's just that you haven't paid taxes on it. No yes. one's paid the rights to Disney, which owns everything. And so... And, and in order to make sure that you're paying your rightful taxes, we have to know about every piece of entertainment you consume, Everything every goes idea you consume. Yeah, right. And, oh, well, wait a minute. This uh, this particular uh, film from the uh, uh, 2010s uh, has something of a subversive content now uh, that we've reestablished peace and good order in 2030. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not going to ban that outright, but it's going to cost you an additional $10 a year to have it on your hard drive. Yeah, because uh, we have to pay for the educational system that will educate people who are infected by it. That's what it's for. Yes, because yes. otherwise... it's schools? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's anti-harmonious for you to own this, and we, we still believe in freedom, mm -hmm. but uh, if you want extra freedom... If you want the premium freedom plan, right. yes, freedom is you have freemium. To pay for it. Freedom, you know, it's it's free to play freedom, 
But in order to really compete with freedom, you'll need to get some DLC. And that we're going to charge you for. Yeah, and I think you can play a lot of stuff with that and, you know, have the, you know, the, the DHS goon squads, you know, they're charging into your brain so that you can have virtual reality um, uh, fights in all kinds of, you know, sets of these movies that, that are, you know, it, 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 all the fun stuff of the holodeck and all the stupid stuff of the holodeck because you're making the holodeck itself the, uh, the commodity that is being uh, pirated and policed. Right, and of course, uh, something that threatens our future harmonious utopia is excess sexual energy. Absolutely. Uh, of course, any, any authoritarian regime, uh, oh, sorry, uh, freemium democratic regime wants to uh, control people's sexual energies, uh, either to uh, keep them ramped up and anxious and, and freaky and, and afraid and all sorts of useful, controllable adrenaline in them, or just to, uh, you know, a... A hatred and fear of pleasure is always a useful tool. If you or know, you want them to engage in the proper harmonious sexual activity so that everyone's exactly. blissed out and doesn't uh, resent the government as much. Right. And and this this sexual activity has been shown to get everyone head up and um uh, and fighty, not proper um uh, sexual activity that's been approved by the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, literally. Right. So the the official state uh, sponsored pornography, hollow pornography, mm -hmm. uh, has all sorts of subliminal messaging in it, making you uh, more uh, susceptible to uh, obedience and thoughts of control and to the, to uh, the embrace of the state. Yes, indeed. So you know, pro police pornography mm -hmm. is uh, is cheaper. But the uh, again, anything with a sort of a, a subversive uh, slant to it uh, is uh, is heavily taxed, and and that justifies uh, control of your uh, computer system. So what uh, in this uh, this autocracy that is uh, reaching uh, into your uh, every uh, entertainment habit? I guess uh, probably books, paper books are going to have to be illegal under this system, or heavily taxed. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you could come in; people could come into their your home check your book collection, but paper books are going to be more expensive because they're harder to monitor because if obviously they're checking your, your uh, Kindle to see what you actually read. And, uh, you know, the books only incur a, a, pre a premium tax charge if you actually read the subversive passages. Mm -hmm. But if you've got good old fashioned paper books in their shelves, they don't know what you're reading. So that's got to be more expensive. So they'll come into your home for spot inspections and, uh, you know, they have a whole database to... Uh, well, they won't even need to come into your home, right? They've got the... Um, uh, they, they've got all your credit card receipts. They know how, what you bought. They've got all your, your cash card receipts. And they have informers. They have good citizens who will warn people that say, Oh, no, I was, I was over at Ken's house and there were shelves and shelves of paper books. It was like something out of some sort of uh, illicit library pornography that I don't know anything about. So this could be actually, uh, instead of a whiskey war, you could have a vintage book war. Right. Where there are uh, enclaves of uh, booksellers who are still uh, selling uh, vintage books uh, un under the table. And you can have a couple of Italians uh, coming in and uh, they're uh, uh, not going to burn the books uh, because that doesn't generate tax revenue. And it, uh, you know, smacks too much of Fahrenheit 451. It's sort of jarring. But you can the government can impound the books and then uh, make sure that they're all uh, 
uh, tagged with uh, electronic tags that... They'll uh, digitize the books and give you a digital copy. There you go. Just like in that uh, Werner Vinge uh, novel where the guy built the giant machine that literally tears the library to shreds so that the computer can more easily scan all the pages at once. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, even for, um, uh, even for Vinge, was, I think, a little obvious, but was still... It was a pretty great uh, mental image, this giant, you know, chewing machine that's tearing all the books to pieces so that they can be more easily digitized. So so I guess uh, this gives us a, uh, a campaign in which you're uh, book warriors and your right. job is to, uh, you're leading the uh, moldy pulp rebellion and uh, trying to overturn the, uh, the government with your... Uh, uh, good old paper copies of the anarchist cookbook from the federalist papers <laughs> yes <laughs> and so this gives you your uh sympathetic uh goal for the uh characters and uh your uh core activity is to uh save and protect this dwindling stock of authentic vintage books from being impounded and digitized and and pulped and so that uh gives you sort of a, you're the Scarlet Pimpernels for, uh, for rare, uh, books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a whole different possibility, even without the, uh, the rest of the regime, you could certainly have a, a system in which certain, you know, uh, the various books are, are being, you know, banned or put, you, you don't even need the VR component now. It's just the, um, just the straight up, uh, book wars, uh, setting. Uh, you could also get, uh, since this is the food hunt, you could get back to the idea that, there are certain uh, rare foods that take up a lot of resources to... They're environmentally unsound. They're environmentally unsound in, in a future where most food is vat-grown and uh, you get little uh, flavor strips to put on your tongue to convince yourself that you've uh, eaten something. And But there are these rare foods that are the... Uh, domain of the elite but of course the government because this is a, a luxury tax that they can easily instate that most people won't get angry about then you have the uh you know the papaya police coming to see you know to, to raid people's houses they might be grow ops in people's houses that are hydroponic natural foods that the uh, food police are coming to confiscate Although I think it's harder to ranch cattle in your apartment in Brooklyn than it is to distill whiskey. Uh, well, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess you'd be uh, dealing with, you know, your backyard uh, chicken hutches or... Right. Or, again, you could have an, a, a situation where civil society is breaking down, as, as it did during the uh, whiskey wars, where there's a big enclave in Brooklyn that has uh, been raised for... Uh, cattle ranching and uh, it's sort of become a lawless zone right and you're in the lawless cattle uh, ranching zone of brooklyn and in order to go and uh, take on your raid where you uh, capture uh, chocolate seeds or uh, or find a rare book since you can combine all of these things then you're uh, you know you have to leave the area of real hamburgers and then enter the gray zone of environmentally responsible food preparation Right of um uh, of of the vat foods, um just as uh what's the, what's the same um the, the line from the prisoner tastes the same looks the same, right? Uh, well, I think we've uh, uh, squeezed a lot of uh, I think world building more than necessarily uh, plot hooks, but there's plot hooks aplenty in there, and so uh, uh, listeners go out and rescue a rare book or a papaya today.
seamless transition from whiskey to bourbon, the clatter of IBM's Selectric keys for no good reason, and the sight of uh, the lights slanting just so poetically through the garret window tell us we've once more entered the precincts of the how-to-write-good-place-of-good-writing-goodness. Uh, Robin, <laughs> uh, since we have had that effortless transition, perhaps you will continue our tradition of transition by setting us up for how to do transitions in your writing. So the movement between one scene and another, I think, is a really underrated key technique in storytelling, whether it's in prose fiction or in teleplays or in screenplays. And it's the way that you move from one scene to another that creates the sense of momentum that I think separates a kind of an uh, adequate reading experience or a story that you put down in the middle from one that compels you to move through it. And so what I'd like to do is to talk a bit about the way that you connect the material in a story. The most obvious way to connect material is to have a single point of view character and you follow them chronologically through time from the beginning of the situation that uh, is introduced at the opening. We've talked about openings before and it's developed over time. And then at the end that's concluded. But even along that way, you are not describing everything that's happening to that character in real time, you can instead leave out the boring bits. And in prose, and particularly, um, it's very easy to do scene transitions, and you can uh, often, particularly older uh, forms, tend to be kind of through-composed. You don't have actual scene breaks so much as sort of uh, bridges between uh, scenes over the course of a paragraph. So it'll be... Uh, and then... Uh, Pip got in the carriage and went to the mansion and talked to the grocer about whatever. <laughs> about what he's doing in a mansion. About what he's doing in the mansion. Well, he's a, he's a wealthy grocer. Right. And the opposite end of that spectrum is something like Citizen Kane, where the narrative has no natural chronological connection. It's been sliced up chronologically in time, and it's instead you are piecing through the narrative of Charles Foster's Kane's life as a reporter goes from one uh, witness to another to tell you about their uh, about Kane's life, sometimes in a contradictory fashion. And so it's a, a puzzle narrative in which the portrait of his life gradually comes together. And if you want to look at an example of cinematic scene transition, Citizen Kane, I think, gets a huge chunk of its greatness and its watchability from the way the scenes connect up to one another. And there are flashy ones where, you know, you're connecting visually from one scene to another through a cockatoo's eye. Uh, there are subtler ones that are just uh, done with verbal cues. And then there are the famous transitions within uh, montage sequences, like the one that shows you the disintegration of his first marriage as it cuts uh, ahead in time and the table at which Cain and his wife sit gets bigger and bigger and longer and longer longer yeah. and longer and their uh, emotional separation becomes a visual separation. So if you really want to look at a, a, a master class in scene transitions, I would say, look at Citizen Kane. Are there things that you think of that uh, do particularly uh, great scene transitions or conversely ones that kind of stop the action? Um, I think in terms of scene transitions, I think more often of 
things like Elmore Leonard, where you have this sort of propulsive movement through scenes, and because the characters are so strong and the story is so strong, that even when you jump cut in the novel to another character's viewpoint, it's somehow less jarring. And I'm not sure if there's a specific uh, technique that he uses for transitions, except just to build up so much momentum that it restores itself when you jump cut to the new guy. I mean, his his transitions are generally either organic to the setting. So you've, you know, you're setting out to go beat the guy up in chapter one, you turn to chapter two, you've beaten the guy up and now he's talking or whatever it is. But there's a, but, but there's a, a fluidity to, to, to his prose, I find, that, that makes it really easy to, 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 to move through the novel without ever being jumped out by, oh, God, what, why are we going and talking to this guy like so many multiple viewpoint novels tend to do? That's the, that's the really tough jump for me is when you jump from uh, person A to person B in a novel and you, ha- you either haven't moved me out of person A or I don't care about person B and didn't care to begin with, and now I have to read him for another chapter until I can get back to person A. That's when I really notice the jumps. Um, and it's not necessarily that the jump was clumsy, it's that the, everything around it was clumsy. Right. I would ad- identify two major kinds of scene transition in terms of plotting, and that is the jump, which you're discussing, and the slide. So the jump is where you uh, a scene ends, comes to its uh, natural conclusion, perhaps leaves a cliffhanger, and then jumps to a new person or situation or just uh, moves ahead in time. And uh, the difficulty there, as you suggest, is that you have to re-engage the reader or the viewer after every single transition. So if you're saying, well, enough of that other thing, here's this, You then have to open that scene and then reintroduce the stakes, uh, which is the element of the story where you're hoping one thing happens and fearing that the opposite thing happens. And that's what creates emotional engagement. And uh, as, as you've also indicated, one of the difficulties there is the reader may not be equally invested in uh, you know, one obscure game of Thrones character uh, as opposed to Tyrion. (laughs) Right. Right. So the other technique is the slide in which the uh, scene B grows as a consequence out of scene A. So in scene A, you can even jump across characters if, for example, the thing that Imelda really wants to happen and is thwarted in having happen in scene A, suddenly you're moving over to Georgia, but uh, Georgia's scene further something that we care about in Imelda's scene. So even though Imelda isn't the viewpoint character, that story thread that whatever Imelda did in scene A is now being picked up by Georgia in scene B, and she is uh, running with that. The simplest version of a slide is something that you see almost constantly in role-playing games, that there's almost never a jump in a role-playing game scenario because the GM introduces the situation, and then the players uh, develop that and roll with that, and, and one obstacle leads to another, leads to another, and you never move away from the group as a whole. Now, sometimes you cut between members of a group when they split up, but even so, that is usually what is happening in each scene is a furthering of the general procedural goal that everybody has. Uh, in drama system, you do get uh, jumps as well as slides, but even there, what is uh, 
usually being developed is something that is going to come back to impact the players who are not involved in that particular scene. So, for example, something like the second X-Men movie, which has a really great momentum, or in fact the, the newest X-Men movie, you will notice that, that those stories almost never stop to introduce a new thread, that they are almost always composed of slides as opposed to jumps. Now, that doesn't mean that momentum is the only thing that anyone is ever looking to generate in a narrative, particularly stories of human drama. It's quite natural to have the rhythm of actual life. You know, the thing that I do in the evening is not necessarily the natural outgrowth of the problem I'm trying to solve in the afternoon. And it's quite normal to cut ahead in time to, you know, two weeks later and Pip has come back from the manor and now a new thing is, is happening uh, to him. But if you are looking for momentum, which you very often are in genre stories, try as much as possible to be somehow having each scene slide from one to the next. Yeah, I think that the the the, the place that jumps work, and or at least the places that jumps uh, begin working for me, is when the point of the narrative is to introduce uncertainty in the reader. And that's why they work so really well in mysteries, right? You have the thing where, um, you know, Sam Spade gets beaten up and then he wakes up, you know, the next day and you don't know what he did, but you don't mind. Or the detective goes off screen and you follow Watson for a while and then Sherlock Holmes comes back and you know that something happened. But the point of the mystery is that Sherlock will reveal what Sherlock did when he was off screen in his own good time and you weren't privileged to see it. Right. Or in a sort of a, a, a horror story, often the breakup of this, of the psychological continuity is sort of the point of the character. And so uh, they're going through something that happens and maybe you're jumping between each sighting of the ghost and you don't follow their life. And each jump should feel discontinuous because the ghost should always surprise you. You should never be at a point when you're reading the horror story going, oh, here comes the ghost again. Thank goodness I was missing the ghost, right? You should always be creeped out by it. You're talking about a couple of things there. Uh, the first one I would describe as a withheld slide where the character has gone through a series of cause and effect developments where each situation grew out of the next, but the author has withheld one of the uh, components of that for later. And then that creates uh, mystery and suspense because we want to know what happened. So even though it seems like a jump, it works like a slide. Um, and the second one is taking all of the unrelated elements of the ghost hunter's life out of the story or quickly dispensing with them, right? You can have a, I'm sure there's got to be a paragraph in a Dennis Wheatley novel somewhere where it says that, uh, uh, oh, what's the lead character in Dr. Richelieu. Richelieu, where it says, Richelieu went about his uh, morning business ensuring that his humidor was full, uh, but when he had a chance to turn his back, his uh, attention back to the demonology case, he pulled this uh, book off the uh, shelf, and this is what he read. And so uh, you're acknowledging that the characters have lives outside of the action, but you're still moving from point A to point B to point C in the action. Ian Fleming does that a lot, of course, because James Bond is always stopping to, you know, eat something or drink something. And you have that yeah. described as part of Fleming's, um, uh, you know, travelogue style of fiction and his 
social status showing off style of being Ian Fleming and allowing the reader to vicariously feel like, yes, if I was in Istanbul, I might be staying in a crummy apartment, but I'd know the good breakfast to order and then feeling uh, like James Bond, that that fantasy of, of competence and that fantasy of power that uh, because. The, part of the reason Bond works so well is that he feeds all the fantasies of power, not just the fantasy of shooting Russians, but also the fantasy of having, uh, you know, uh, sex with uh, delightful companions and also eating well and knowing what to order in the restaurant and all of the fantasies of power at once. And by switching up between those different fantasies, Fleming is able to move between scenes while still maintaining that same sort of... uh uh, Bondian supercilious perspective and then when he jumps to the Russians are up to something or, or uh, Dr. No is up to something then that's a real you know threat because it's like oh no you're going to endanger the delicious breakfast and the lovely lady that we just met <laughs> you filthy Russians yes in the Hamlet's hit points uh, beat breakdown parlance a beat where you stop to just convey vicarious enjoyment for example of Bond sitting poolside in Havana uh, drinking a Cuba Libre uh, is a gratification beat. And so that's sort of an up note that uh, you enjoy sort of on its own sake. And the risk of gratification beats is that if you do them too well, or you do them, or sorry, if you do them too often, or you do them inexpertly, that, that you become conscious of them and it slows right, down. Right, and you can, you can read plenty of, of post uh, Fleming spy novels to see them done badly. Uh, yes. Um, and, or just, uh, or in a look, later Le Carre novels where there's just a ton of, uh, supposedly evocative details of ordinary lives that don't advance the plot any. And so that's yes. a, a failure <laughs> of propulsion is that there's a lot of mimetic action that describes people and places and things, but it's not really a scene and it doesn't really convey any emotional information. It's just there to get us to buy into the naturalism of that, which we have already done because we're reasonably adept fast readers and don't need all of that information to continue to, to go along in the, in the course of the story. Le Carre is another example of a guy who is making a virtue out of his not particular aptness with transitions by deliberately making the, the readers uh, sort of look for the thread, but then that generally maps to what George Smiley or whatever the main character is doing in the novel, so you have that same sense that you're you're, you're parsing a, a, a flow of information past you, even though he does not particularly move between scenes very gracefully as a writer. Um, he's certainly less fluid than, you know, than Fleming is, for example, uh, a, a contrast that would anger him uh, <laughs> immensely, no doubt. Well, but, in a way, it's intentional because he's depicting a plodding world yeah. where there's sort of quotidian people going about their everyday lives and running spy networks. Uh, but that's something that works a lot better in the earlier novels where the spine action is much more sharply delineated because it's the Cold War than mm -hmm. in the later novels where uh, it's about spies flailing around in a world where the clarity of being a spy has vanished in the wake of the end of the Cold War. And unfortunately, the, the novels kind of flounder a bit too. And, and also Le Carre is, is writing them more as, uh, as screeds and less as novels, which is a shame. Because his ability to actually sort of set those uh, those psychological scenes up is still really really good. It's just not in service to anything now. Right, and and in Hamlet's hit points parlance, that's a commentary beat where the <laughs> author stops to tell you something, and those are uh, even 
have to be used with even more care than uh, gratification beads. And in both cases, you want to, to the extent that you're, I mean, really, if you want to send a message in, in fiction, you need to do it through the action of what the characters do, right. not through stopping to editorialize. What, what happens is the editorial. Uh, but uh, that in constructing, that's, and that's maybe more a matter of in, internal scene construction than, than about transitions, but still, uh, you want to make sure that any scene has a, an endpoint that feels natural and a, a scene that you can't get out of that there isn't a clear transition from is probably a scene where there's not enough happening and that there, you're not really playing with the stakes and the emotional up and down beats that actually arise from the story and the characters rather than stuff that you're just plunking in so if you're having trouble with transitions and knowing where to go that's probably a sign of a deeper problem within either the scene itself or the way that the scene B logically arises out of scene A. Anyway, speaking of transitions uh, and uh, plodding along, it's time to obey our own instructions and jump to the next segment. A shadowy miasma of dread, the feeling that eyes are upon us, the sense that world powers are making us important by trying to destroy us. That tells us that we have entered the murky cross-section intersection known as the Conspiracy Corner. And this episode, we're going to uh, riff a bit on a, a bit of internet legendary that arises from someone's experience at the Hotel Zaza in uh, Houston, Texas. Uh, so apparently if you check into this hotel, uh, it is possible that you will be mistakenly assigned a room that looks a lot different than the other rooms. So the story goes that a, a hotel patron thought he was just signing up for a regular room in this luxury boutique hotel, but instead was ushered into a room with concrete flooring and what looked like a two-way mirror and kind of sinister paintings on the walls, including the, a portrait of a disgraced uh, business figure who was uh, uh, arrested for white-collar crime. And it, it conveyed the sense of a room that was uh, both a past and probably future crime scene, perhaps with you <laughs> as the victim. And so at this point... Or worse the, yet, as the perpetrator. Or as the perpetrator. Um well, if you've been sent into the murder room and you don't know that it's a murder <laughs> it's room... It's like the old light about the poker game. Look around the room. If you can't tell who the murderer is, it's you. Yes, or in this case, who the victim is. Anyway, the uh, story goes that the guy uh, either called down to the desk or shortly thereafter got a call from the desk. Oh, sorry, we we booked you into the wrong room, sir. And then they moved him into a, a normal room, but not before he managed to take photographs of this uh, weird, creepy looking room that looks like a set from an esotericism movie. And uh, <laughs> thereby an internet legend was born. So I thought we would uh, take uh, what is known as the hard times room in the hotel Zaza. They just claim it's a theme room. There are a number of crazy theme rooms. Yeah. We don't have a murder room in our hotel. That's crazy. It looks like a murder room, but that's the theme. That's the theme. Murder. Uh, but it definitely looks like uh, somewhere uh, where the uh, members of the Illuminati, it's, I think, referred to on, on the net as the Illuminati hotel room. Uh, so I guess that's where, uh, you know, members of the Illuminati get to uh, uh, murder their escorts or something. So, Ken, uh, we can spin a number of uh, plot riffs off of this. So why don't you uh, 
take the low-hanging fruit and do the most obvious uh, plot line that this would uh, lead to. Well, I mean, you sort of have to see the room to, to get what we're talking about, and there will be a link, obviously, in the show notes. But uh, when you look at this room specifically, uh, I think Robin is right when he when he calls it an esoteric uh, movie room. This is a room in which a working is going to happen. Uh, when they talk about in the in the discussion, the hotel says, no, the room was just very small and unusually shaped, and that's why we decided to make it the prison-themed room. Um, obviously, the prison is a reference to the Gnostic prison that is existence. The working is to liberate yourself from that existence through death, and, the, and there are creepy twins on the wall. I'm not exactly sure what Jay Camo, the head of Stanford Financial Group's role is as your as your uh, a spirit animal or guardian spirit that leads you out of here, but maybe it's the notion that, that money is also an illusion, that you have to break free of that as well. This is a room for a Gnostic working. It's, it's where you engage in a Western version of Chod, the ego destruction ritual of Tibetan uh, uh, Bon faith, and you tear yourself to pieces and, or are torn to pieces by the creepy uh, painted twins or that... Um, uh, horrible uh, bald serial killer painting and then you are rebuilt and when you are rebuilt you are an illuminatus of uh, someone who has seen in behind the scrim behind the hard times into the the shining times into the golden age and you are capable then as once you leave r- room 322 of bringing it about you are one of the elect uh and the the the, the, the creepy skull and the mirrors and everything else just exists to sort of focus your destruction more effectively. And the concrete floors are just so it's easy to mop up. Right. So uh, but that was perhaps not the most obvious uh, That plot. wasn't the most obvious? No, the, the most, most obvious, obvious plot is just that it's the real Illuminati who, uh, that's their uh, room where they get to murder people and uh, this... Uh, oh, the dodgy, uh, rich uh, serial killer uh, perverts yes, room. So that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Tattoo. Sure. Right. And so you, you <laughs> mistakenly... Uh, get access to that and uh then you uh you know you upload your photos to the internet and you think that's the end of it but then after you uh check out suddenly uh people are on your trail and uh so it's just a it's a conspiracy thriller in which uh something went missing from that hotel room at about the time that you checked into it and there was uh you know a, a usb drive that was supposed to be sitting there waiting for the client who was supposed to get possession the of the real room. murder guy. Yeah. And it went missing. I, th- I think maybe what happens is you check in, right? And then they send up the person who's been groomed to be your murder victim, right? It's, it's someone who's been specifically put in the, the Illuminati holding tanks under Disney world or wherever. And then they've been sent up. Well, it's Houston. So probably six flags over Texas, but they've, they've sent you up. Uh, you're your victim, but you don't know that you're supposed to murder this girl. You're just supposed to, you're like, what the hell are you? Did I order an escort by accident? And then you, she's sort of comes out of her brainwashing when you're not giving the, the proper, you know, code words for the sacred murder. And then the two of you have to go on the run and she's the thing that you've stolen from the room, but you can't be giving her back because she's a person. Uh, she's not supposed to be murdered for satanic power. She's supposed to live a happy life. Right. And that gives you your, uh, it, it's less of a wrong man, thriller than just a, a sort of a up the economic ladder uh, Satanist, uh, you know, walk into the Satanist village and then try and get out alive. Yes. And, and, but it also lets you introduce, you know, more characters into your, into your game as opposed to a one guy on the run, Hitchcocky right. thing, because now you've got a, a guy and a girl and then you could have, you know, like a, another character that you meet, you know, who's, um, uh, who's elsewhere in the, in, in Houston, maybe, you know, one of the astronauts who survived the fake moon landing, 
you know, you meet him and, and that's what, you know, that, and that can be your, your three man band as you go out and, uh, and, and fight Illuminati crimes. Another possibility is that rather than you're being the person who starts the story by uh, getting admitted to the room is that you're the investigators tracking a trail of related killings and then that winds up taking you to the murder room and that could be a case of uh in fact that there's a kind of a two-sided trade agreement that this hotel has where there are people who want others bumped off they want you know witnesses killed or uh, other people disposed of or you know political dissidents or whatever and then you have your uh recreational group of serial killers who want to bump them off for you and they will dispose of the body uh, with the help of the hotel mm -hmm. so that the hotel is making money both from the serial killers and from the people who want their wives and husbands and business partners and uh, people who are going to testify against them bumped off. And then that gives them a uh, barrier of connectivity because uh, normal homicide cops, of course, check to find out, uh, who would want to kill you and who you know, while the uh, people who wanted the victims killed all have perfect alibis because they've made sure to have them, and the uh, uh, killers have no connection to their victims, and therefore you can't uh, track the connection. And so your uh, job in this one is to put all of those things together in order to find out the uh, hoteliers who are the middlemen of uh, murder, and the way that that uh, room is dressed is there to, you know, please the serial killers. They've arranged it, but it's not really uh, more than that. It's it's just a sort of a set decoration detail. And the mystery, in fact, is about the this complicated uh, business uh, conspiracy, this uh, new twist on uh, murder for hire. Although I think that if you're um, if you're if you're leaving the decor behind, you're sort of. Uh you're sort of wasting a shot. I mean, the, the part of the, the, the reason well, it's a cool reveal at the end though, right? Yeah, when you right. see the room. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, although in this case, I guess, so I guess your, your theory is that you're following all these murders and then you get to this room, which is the big creepy murder room at the end of the adventure. Yes. Not that you're and investigators. So that's that's and a that visual, this... visual representation of the, uh, moral absence that has led to this whole uh, arrangement. Right. And of course, okay. and when you. you find it, you know, someone goes up alone and then the door locks behind them and then the uh, two-way mirror slides open and uh, in comes Ted Bundy, who is just looking older, not dead. Mm -hmm. I think that the the notion of the room being a portal to other uh, to a hotel where this is normal, maybe, you know, so Alamarjo or somewhere worse, or that this hotel is a portal to, you know, all the other creepy hotel rooms, so room 1408 from that movie and all, and the and the room with the window and and uh, the dreams in the witch house room, and they're all sort of connected, and that this room acts as one of the doorways, and that that's why all this stuff is there, is that these images are there to sort of act as seals on the doorway, and without them, there wouldn't, you know, the, the you know Houston would be a smoldering crater or or something, and that this uh, that the, the, the creepy twins and the and the and the bald uh, guy and and JMO are there as you know, as witnesses and they are are keeping the room you know fixed in our universe and that might be because uh you want the room fixed in our universe as i say otherwise it opens up a hole and everything leaks out or uh you don't want it fixed in and this room is a cyst where eruptors and outer dark entities and uh near Othotep and whatever can sort of filter in and people who stay here who think oh this is a funny little uh concept room i'm a i'm an awesome hipster but they're they're filtered they're they're full of these uh 
of these parasites from the from the parallel world where this room is normal, where this is like a, a regular, you know, uh, Super 8, uh, then they leave into our world, and because our world doesn't match what their brain thinks is right anymore, they have to go and make it match. And that's when trouble ensues. Right, and it could also be a gateway into sort of a trapping spell that traps you into all of your uh, pop cultural fears associated with hotels and mazes and labyrinths so that you uh, hear this rumbling sound go through in the hallway and you open the door and there's a kid on a plastic trike uh, motoring by. And if you follow him along, you keep moving from door to door. And so you're sort of trapped in a mental kind of Alice in Wonderland of uh, different horror images. And it could be, you know, literally from your uh, stock of horror that you've got in your brain and you can find yourself, you know, you're trapped in a waking dream state and you have to keep moving through this labyrinth of different uh, theme rooms in order to find the one, that the exit that will allow you to wake up. And when you wake up, you might wake up in the weirdo murder room or you might find out that the room has been transformed into a, you know, perfectly anonymous ordinary hotel room at the end right or a perfectly anonymous ordinary hotel room that it looks like this room redressed to be a perfectly ordinary anonymous hotel room you know the mirrors become a, a landscape and the creepy twins have, have just become you know all the pictures have, have sort of normalized themselves and so you're not sure if you've escaped or if the world has just sort of rotated its way uh, out of your perception again um, or it could just be an exit into a, another dimension where you have been murdered in this other dimension that you go to. It's it's like your world totally, except you pick up the paper and see that that morning you were killed in that hotel room. And what do you do with that now? You go to the authorities and uh, they you can't possibly be you. We've got you in the morgue. Mm -hmm. uh, wh what's up with this? We better uh, put you in prison retroactively. And of course you escape from that and that's your... Uh, uh, it's a... Uh, escape a wrong man escape thriller in an alternate dimension right. because whoever uh, is supposed to be managing the dimensional portals is screwed up and doesn't want them revealed and so they're trying to track you down and uh, make sure that you're also killed in this timeline because it's uh, inconvenient to just let you go back into your timeline because you know all of this stuff. Yeah, I should mention that that giant mirror of course puts me in the mind of the great uh, Heinlein horror story The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hoag um, and if uh, you wanted to do a modernized Jonathan Hoag, this could be the sort of thing that starts showing up as you move. And again, this is like a visual cue as you're moving deeper and deeper and deeper into the nightmarish world that uh, the, the cultists in that, in that story are building. Um, uh, and you could, uh, you could present all manner of, of, of these things as sort of uh, clues that are coming to you from the future or that have been left there by other people who found the room and, and have been unable to uh, to get out of it. So maybe you meet the the bald guy in the painting, and he's actually a, a monk who's mastered the Tibetan chod and is able to move back and forth between the rooms. And he has got a warning for you, and he's a helpful monk, not a creepy, bald serial killer monk. Another mundane thriller that could arise out of this is you're not the guest in the hotel, but you are the new employee at the hotel. And you are accidentally summoned to the room when the cleanup crew is there after the murder, and uh, they assume you're, due to a screw-up at the desk, they assume you're part of the cleanup crew. Well, now you've opened the door and you've seen this, and your instinct, of course, is to, uh, you call the cops, and of course, in the true manner of a conspiracy thriller, the cops are in on it, and then you have to kind of escape, and you're trying to 
uh, prove to some higher authority that hopefully isn't corrupt that this whole uh, Illuminati uh, murder ring is going on. And of course, you either seem insane, they either then clean everything up and make everything seem fine. But of course, they're still, when they have the chance, they're going to knock you off. So you have to uh, find out what's uh, uh, really all behind that and find out who you can safely expose it to uh, before they get you. And you can also use this as a jumping off point to design your own creepy room in your game. So like there could be a Carcosa room, right? That's got uh, lots of yellow everywhere and a copy of the King in Yellow instead of the Gideon Bible. And the desks are all a combination of uh, French Empire, uh, Belle Epoque desks and weird uh, 1930s uh, how, uh, chast, uh, Castain future, uh, modernism, and there's all manner of, of, of weird decor in it and, and a, you know, a negative painting of stars on, uh, black stars on a white sky on the wall and stuff like that. Or you could have another room that is meant to evoke, uh, a specific, um, sensation, uh, or, or, or entity. The, the notion of this as a, as, as a, as, as sort of a, a ritual chamber, is, is worth looking at in, in terms of, first of all, like we said, you know, like we've been doing, sort of building the ritual that would take place in this, in this weirdo room. But also you could use this as a, as a model for a, another kind of ritual room that you would do in a different hotel or maybe in the same chain of hotels. Like this is a, this is a chain, the Zaza Hotel. So they have a Zaza Hotel in Dallas and maybe they have a, you know, Kennedy assassination room there that you, when you go in, you're, you're stooled to the rogue and you learn the secret. Because in the Houston room, they have a Houston, we have a problem room which is probably where they tell you about faking the moon landing. Maybe they've got a chain of these hotels all over the world, and in each of them, if you go into that room, that mystery room, part of the making manifest that which is hidden, which the conspiracy has to do, um, you can solve the mystery if you can stay all night in the room, but of course the room is full of the ghosts of everyone who's been murdered there by the uh, rich uh, perverts. And in a uh, secret magical world, you could have the idea of a, the king in yellow room puts me in mind of a hotel that caters to sorcerers. So they have uh, in their library, they have the Necronomicon, they have the Book of Ivan, they have all of the best grimoires that you can't possibly afford, and they have all of the wardings up to protect uh, the hotel from outside assault and from penetration by people who do not have the third eye. And you go there to uh, either recuperate your powers or to... Uh, have access to a piece of research or to have a safe uh, space to perform your rituals where you know that uh, demons won't get in and, and pervert your sigils. But in exchange for having this resource, you have to do a magical favor. You have to go on a quest for the mysterious owners of the hotel chain. And so that gives you a, a plot hook that gives you a place for your characters to uh, have sort of a haven, which uh, player characters in a, uh, group often desire and it gives you the opportunity to you know you go down to the uh, cafeteria in the morning for uh, the complimentary breakfast and do you approach any of the other sorcerers do you try to talk to them do you uh, what about that um, mysterious uh, elfin wafy girl who's looking at you pleadingly uh, as the uh, big hulking sorcerer next to her sort of tugs on the invisible leash around her neck as she's uh, looking to you for help. Do you break the covenant of the hotel by interfering with the workings of your, uh, of other stranger magicians, or do you sort of let that go as part of the ambient weirdness of everything and, and instead maintain your role as a, 
uh, proper gold card client of a hotel chain. The notion of the gold card makes me think that that might be another way that you, a norm, a mundane, a muggle, stumble onto this magical hotel or the murder hotel or the special, whatever is special about this room. It's obviously set up for a very specific sort of ritual and a very specific sort of activity. And so you go in and, you, and you're checking in and they run your card and you get a look at, uh, the, at the screen or whatever and the room costs like $148,000, even though it's <laughs> tiny and stupid. And you're like, that seems high. And then they look at it. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Mr. McGonagall, not Mr. McGonagall. And they, you know, say, no, no, we'll give you a, a, another room. Don't worry about it. And now you're like, why would that room be $148,000? What's going on? What's so special about that room? Because if you, uh, if you look at like the ways that these like super high end hotels pamper you and, and give you all kinds of things in a giant, you know, more space than a, a suburban family of four has and, and all the, the, the magical stuff. And to pay that kind of money and get this weird, creepy, tiny, concrete-floored room, that should be a signal as well in sort of an, an economic uh, spur of, of evil that uh, if, if people who can afford this hotel room are staying here, they can't be up to any good. They have to be communing with the with the, the, the tulpa of JKMO or something. Something really bad has to be going on. And that's like your clue. And then you can't even report it to the cops. You can't say, these guys are charging six figures for a terrible hotel room. And the cops are like, well, don't pay it then. <laughs> right. And then there'd have to be some other inciting incident to uh, force you to move from curiosity right. into action. So then you get into the, uh, you know, they're trying to come at, people are, weird people are showing up at your house. And maybe in this version, they're just trying to erase your memory. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't know that and they're chasing you and uh, you start fleeing and in the process of escaping them, you learn enough about them that quickly they have to, you know, they either really want to erase your memory or after a while, they're just going to whack you, keep it safe and erase you totally. Well, I think that's a, a ton of different possible ways to riff the Illuminati hotel room into a story or game. So uh, I think it's time for us to check out of another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Show your loyalty to Queen Elizabeth I by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such regal patrons as Derek Upham. And Ted Arlaskus. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or street fighting whiskey by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin B. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>